we're going to be in James 1 again this morning. As we start, I wanted to uh, remind you of something tragic uh, for sake of point here to help us appreciate uh, what we were looking at in James 1 this morning. Uh, you may remember back in 2004, uh, there was a very large earthquake out in the Indian Ocean and that caused tsunami waves that were uh, incredibly large and uh, in countries like Thailand, Malaysia and surrounding countries there were many people who were killed uh, very quickly because of this destruction. So I don't know, I mean this is a real picture, I don't know if that first one's really a real picture, but uh, uh, there was massive destruction and the total uh, death toll uh, it was somewhere between 225,000 and 250,000, um, or even maybe up to 280. But in times of tragedy like that, what often happens with people in the world is people in the world look at that and say, if there's an all-powerful God who is good, why would he let such a thing happen, or why would he do such a thing? In times of great tragedy where there's massive loss of life, like in this example, or in times of warfare where there is a lot of people killed, people ask those kinds of questions. How could God allow that? Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can understand that they don't have the framework of the scriptures to guide them in their thinking about how the events of the world happen and why uh, there are tragedies. We know that it's because sin ultimately, and sin entered the world, and so death passed upon all men because of sin. Um, and yet, the, as believers, we can understand why the unsaved therefore would not understand, um, but we have to be honest as well. As believers, there's times we question God too. When we go through difficulties, when we go through hard times, it can be a temptation, it can be a test of our faith that we may question God's goodness. We may question his purposes. Why is he working in the way he's working? Why is he doing what he's doing? We have to be honest. We, at times, wrestle with that as well. So we're going to look at James 1.13 to 18 this morning, Lord willing, to remind us that in trials, as we were just reminded in Sunday school, God is faithful. God is good. That doesn't change. God doesn't change. And we're going to see in James 1, 13 to 18, that James is driving home that point. So let's look at verses 13 to 18 before we pray this morning. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when, it is, uh, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't understand all of what you do and why what you do. We do understand some basics from scriptures. There are many times in our lives and many times with events in the world that it doesn't make perfect sense to us, but we thank you for the scripture. We thank you that you have had these things written, that you worked with James to write these very words to remind us that even as we face incredibly difficult and hard things in our lives, you haven't changed. You are still good. And that we need to anchor our joy, anchor our hope to you and not let our circumstances uh, move us away from that secure truth, that anchor. Help us, Father, to grow in our confidence in your goodness not be driven away from it. And Father, if there's any that don't truly know you and haven't truly experienced your goodness and salvation, that you'd help them to come to know you and come to experience that great uh, graciousness and goodness in their lives. And we ask you to open our eyes as we look at your word today to be reminded of these wonderful things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've been talking in James, we've been talking about how God allows trials in our lives. We've been focused, and because James has been focused in the beginning verses here, on the big picture of trials in our lives. And now, as we go to verses 13 to 18, we're going to specifically focus in on temptations that occur within the trials. Now, I haven't explained it clearly uh, previously in previous messages, but I need to let you know that the, the word, the Greek words used for trial and temptation are actually the same words. So there's, there's one word that's a noun and one that's a verb, and we'll look at those, but it's actually the same word. And so that can lend some confusion to what's being talked about, but the guide really is the context. So, so far, James has been talking about the big picture, the trials that we go through, and now he's specifically going to focus in on the temptations we experience within trials. So, just a quick review of some words. Let's look at uh, verse 2. He says in verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's the noun form of the word, and it's translated here, trials, because of the context is talking about the big picture of how God brings and allows difficulty and hardship in our lives to bring growth and change. Uh, but uh, we also see in verse 12, it's the same word again, the noun form of the word, where it says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now, if you were to look at, uh, I think it's the King James, uh, specifically for uh, verse 2, translates the word temptation. And I, the, that's the point I'm making. The word is the same uh, for trial and temptation. It's the context that guides you in what is being referred to. Now, when we get to verse 13, which is where we're starting this morning, 
it's used multiple times. You see uh, in the verbal form, though, in verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted uh, by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. That's the verbal form up appearing there three times, talking about God, uh, not uh, no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. That's the verb. Um, and then he himself does not tempt anyone. Three times is the verb. One time there is actually the noun form where it says God cannot be tempted. And uh, that is the same word used in verse 12, except that it has a prefix which negates it. So you understand in English we can add a prefix and change a word basically to be the negative of it. So if you were to say... Um, that's a really believable thing, or I could believe that would happen. We add the word un in front of it. We say it's unbelievable. We can't believe it. It's the same idea here in the Greek. It's basically the alpha being added to the same word to say about God that he cannot be tempted. He's not temptable. So those are the words in verse 14. It occurs one more time as well, but each one when he is tempted is carried away. So it's the same word, so that can add a little bit of confusion. But as we look at the passage today, James is specifically focusing in on the subject of temptation, and he's, asked, he's addressing what might be a question in people's minds. If God, who is sovereign, in control of all things, brings and allows trials and challenges and difficulties in our lives, does that mean that God also brings the temptation in our lives? And James is speaking against that to say that God is not the source of temptation. So before we dive into that a little more detail, I would just say this. The relationship with trial and temptation can be a little challenging to understand. Like we said, it's the same word. But if you think about it this way, every trial involves a temptation and every temptation represents a trial or a test so there is a clear relationship and i would suggest what helps me as i think about it maybe this will help you is to perhaps think about the trial as the external pressures combination of forces that come against us being circumstances or people that result in a physical mental emotional spiritual challenges and the temptation is an appeal to our inner person or our will to choose to respond in uh, sinful ways. And we see with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our su supreme example in resisting temptation, there were incredible forces brought upon him, the, the evil one himself, trying to tempt him. He had gone without food for 40 days. He was clearly hungry. And the devil tempts him to uh, turn the, the stones into bread. But there was nothing sinful in our Lord in his desires or in his will that would incline him or draw him into sin. So he would not sin. He would not succumb to any temptation. So this morning, we're going to focus in on the concept of temptation and trusting that even though we face temptation in trials, we need to recognize that God is good. God is good. And we need to be careful, therefore, not to blame God 
for the trials that come in our lives. So my encouragement to you, point number one, based on James here, is to reject the temptation to blame God. Reject the temptation to blame God. We have the requirement here laid out for James in verse 13. Look there again. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So let's, let's clarify, though, a couple things. So I realize we're starting a little slow. We're explaining a lot of things. But I think verse 13 is perhaps the most important to lay the groundwork for the rest of what we'll cover. So we have here the subject of the sentence in verse 13. He says, let no one um, when he is tempted. So the actual subject here is, is no one. Um, or the idea of the one who's in a temptation here. So the idea is, while being tempted, James is warning us about our attitude in the temptation. So he's saying to the person who's in the temptation, don't say this. This is again a command, the word let, we think of in English as passive, but it's actually a command to the third person. James is commanding these people in Whoever's in temptation, this is not what you should say. And I would just add, though he uses the word say, we should understand it includes thoughts as well. Our speech is just an example of us expressing what's in our heart, but it would also include what we think, even if we don't verbalize it. All right? So what James is saying then ultimately is we need in a trial to be careful not to accuse God for the temptation or accusing him of causing us to sin. So the logic would go like this. God is the author of trials. This is the, this is the wrong logic, but this is what James is addressing. The logic would go like this. God is the author of trials, right? And he is. He brings trials into our lives, no question. That's what James has been saying. So if God is the author of trials, is he not then the author of temptation? And that's the problem, and that's what James is addressing. And it has to do with motivation. What is God's purpose in bringing us into trials? God's purpose in bringing us into trials, as we read in previous verses and talked about in previous weeks, God's purpose is to bring growth and endurance in our lives to strengthen us, to make us stronger. That's his goal. That's what he wants. He's not trying to promote evil. He does not promote evil. That is Satan's goal. So the motivation of God in trials is to test us for the purpose of strengthening us. Consider with me Job. Remember what happened in Job 1? Satan appears before God, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, let, I mean, think, God is sovereign, right? Satan wasn't focused on Job. It was God that drew Satan's attention to Job. So in the overall grand picture, God's ultimately intending for Job to be tested. You with me? But God's purpose in Job being tested was for his faith in God to be strengthened, to demonstrate the genuineness of his faith. 
And we see Satan responds, oh, yeah, and, and basically takes the challenge and, and, and uh, gets permission from God to do things in Job's life. He brings the death of ten children and the destruction of much of his property, his animals. And we see Job respond right away with the answer that glorifies God. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? A trial that came into Job's life that God intended ultimately to strengthen Job, even though it was very difficult, and yet uh, Job responded correctly. So there's a second round of it, and Satan gets permission to do additional things, and Job, over time, wears down and experiences frustration and different things, and he doesn't understand. But in the end... Job's faith and reverence for God is strengthened, and, and that was God's goal. Now, I think there's another text that will help us think about temptations that we go through as believers. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. I'm just going to turn there for ease of reading it there instead of looking back at the screen. But uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can see it up there. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God has written this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So notice a couple things with me from this text about temptation, which is helpful for us to understand. Number one, temptation is common. There's a tendency that we have to make us, ourselves, to be an exception, right? We tend to say, oh, you know, I know that's normally true, but I'm different, and, and this is different for me. Well, God says temptation is common, and the kinds of things we're going to be tempted to do or to think or to say or how we'll behave is common experience to mankind. It may be that you're the only one that you know of that's gone through a particular trial, but overall in the human experience, it's not unique. And that's important to understand because that means... You're not an exception, and therefore what God has said is true of you as well, and there is an escape. There is a way out. Us being different is not an excuse to give in to the, the temptation. It is common to mankind. God allows trials to come, and, many, and the trials include an element of temptation in it, but it also says here that God is faithful God is faithful in the temptation. What does it say how God is faithful? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And he explains a little bit more. He says, but with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape. Does that mean as a genuine believer, you will always, every time, respond the right way to a trial and temptation? No, no. But God provides within the trial and the temptation that you face a way for you to escape. The problem is we often don't believe that. 
or we're discouraged and trying to find it, or we get frustrated, or it goes on long and we wear down. But God is faithful. We should understand when we encounter temptation that God will provide a way out. And his purpose, again, here is stated about trials, that we will be able to endure it. He's producing endurance. But God will give us a way out. So, we face some trials, we face some difficulties, and many times the way we think about it is we just need to be out from underneath it. When the reality is that may not be the escape that God has in mind. But we need to trust that in a temptation, God does give a way to escape. God does give us a way to endure it. Now this reminds me, to illustrate this, it reminds me of a children's movie I've seen. I have young children and um, many of the movies that my children watch, sometimes I find quite entertaining and uh, some of them stick with me. I don't know if any of you have seen Disney's Tangled movie. Disney, I think maybe it's Pixar, maybe it's just Disney. Um, The movie Tangled is basically a modern version of Rapunzel. You know, Rapunzel is the the young lady with the really long hair that you could, the prince could climb up her hair to get to the tower, right? Well, in in Disney's version of this, we have uh, a young lady, Rapunzel, who's been trapped in a tower, and she she decides to break out as she approaches, I think it's her 16th birthday. But there's this man who's actually a thief. His name is Flynn, and he's helping her to escape, and there's this special ceremony where they light these candles that she wants to go see. Well, he's promised to take her. Well, they're running, and the problem is this guy's a thief, so he's being chased by the royal uh, authorities trying to capture him, and so she's stuck running away from them with him, and they get to a point where they get trapped. They essentially get trapped in a cave. So it's kind of a dark picture. You may not be able to see. No, you can't see at all. All right, but basically, they're trapped in a cave, and what's happening is water is filling up in the cave. They're in this cave, and he initially dives down into the water looking for loose rocks, trying to find a way to get out of the cave because the water's filling up, and they're going to suffocate. They're going to die. And uh, he tries a number of things, and he gets discouraged because it's basically too dark for him to see anything. And uh, he injures his hand in the process as well. And so if you could see it, I guess it's too dark. But he's basically in despair, thinking there's no way out. And she also is in despair because she doesn't know all that he's done that's wrong, but uh, she feels guilty because she... Uh, asked him to take her on this trip, and now they're about to die, and she's feeling overwhelmed that it's all her fault. Well, it's just a movie. It's just a fairy tale. Um, But what happens is she realizes her hair can glow, and so therefore they can see in the dark. So she starts singing, and what happens is when she starts singing, her hair glows underwater, and then they can see there's some rocks, where there's a hole and water's able to get out or escape there, so then they go and they start digging the rocks out and moving them out of the way, and they basically they find their way out. Now, this is a fairy tale, but the reality is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if God brings trials which result in temptation in your life, he will have 
a way for you to escape it. We need to believe that God is in control and that he's good and that he has not given us something more than we're able to handle. We need to believe that there is a way out and trust him to find it, even if it doesn't make sense to us. That's what God's saying here. Now, why, why is James urging us to... Uh, not speak this way, not say these things about God. We know that Satan is the tempter, right? If Satan is the tempter, we know that we know it's not God tempting us. Why is James bringing this up? Why is he saying this? Why is this important? Because as believers, we know that God's in control. And as we said, if God's the author of trials, right, it could be a logical thought. If he is the author of trials, then he's behind the temptations. Well, it's important to reject that. And let's look at, some, uh, so the accusation that we make, we probably wouldn't be so bold as to come right out and say, God's the one tempting me, right? That's not how we usually do it. What we do, though, is we accuse God of other things about our circumstances. If God, if you hadn't allowed this person to come into my life, this wouldn't have happened. Or if you would just let me do this, then this wouldn't have happened, right? And that started all the way back with Adam and Eve, didn't it? Adam and Eve were in the garden. They weren't supposed to eat of one fruit. It seems like an incredibly easy thing, doesn't it, to resist that temptation? They got fruit everywhere. They got food everywhere. They got one thing they can't have. So then after they've eaten, they've disobeyed God, God confronts them, and he says, Adam, where are you? And, and, and uh, you know, he's confronted about his sin. Have you eaten from the tree, which I said you shouldn't eat? And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me, she gave it to me. It's her fault, and ultimately because you gave her to me, it's your fault. You see that? And what does Eve do? The serpent tricked me. Right? Blaming God ultimately for their disobedience. And we are their descendants. And we do the same things. We need to be careful when we go through trials not to blame God. Look at Proverbs 19.3 with me. Proverbs 19.3 I think is another powerful example of how we respond many times for our own sinful choices. Proverbs 19.3 says, the foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. So we choose foolishly, and it ruins our lives. It causes destruction. And what do we do in response? We rage against God as if it's his fault. Same idea. So, James goes on then and gives some reasons why it's not God's fault. Why is it not God's fault for our temptation and our fall or our sinfulness? He says here that God is untemptable. As I said, this is the negating of the word temptation. God cannot be tempted. He is without sin. He is absolutely perfect. He cannot be tempted. God is not temptable. Now, we might ask the question, well, then how was Jesus Christ tempted, 
right? And it talks about Jesus Christ being tempted like as we are. And um, we talked about how Jesus was tempted by the devil. But again, the idea is that even though the devil would try to bring external pressure on Christ to tempt him, there is nothing in his own nature or in his will that would allow him to be influenced to sin. He absolutely would not and will not sin. God cannot lie, the Bible tells us. God is perfect and holy and cannot and will not change. So if God is untemptable and, and it says he does not tempt anybody, then it's not his fault. He doesn't push us into temptation. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. It is a result of our own sinful choices. It's not God's fault. Think about it. Uh, we, we use the phrase, misery enjoys company, right? Um, it is the devil and his angels who are going to be punished forever for their sin that want to bring people with them, not God. God is good. He is gracious. He does not change. It is not God's fault. And that brings us to our second point here as we look at verses 14 to 15. But whose fault is it, really? Well, obviously, it's our fault. We need to recognize we are responsible for sin. Let's look at the process here of uh, temptation it talks about in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lust. So it is our desires, our uh, and, and many times what happens in temptations, it's simply natural desires for things that are good, but it may be things that are not the right time, or it's not ours to have, or it's too much, or it's the inappropriate way to get it. But it's playing upon our natural desires for things we may need or legitimately want and yet to get it in a way that's not appropriate. And, and it talks about here being drawn away by our desires and incited or being tempted or enticed to willfully choose sin. So you can think of it like bait. Um, I like to go fishing. Um, the basic concept of how fishing works is you appeal to the natural desire of a fish to eat and you provide either a real thing it would eat or something that looks like something it would eat. And you try to get the fish to take a bite and therefore be trapped. Well, temptation is similar in how it works. The devil, or our own sinful nature, appeals to us. We see something that we want, we desire, and it joins with our will to do a sinful thing. Evil desires come from our sinful nature. Evil desires come from our desire to please ourselves above glorifying God. And trials and temptations simply reveal that these things are in our hearts. Now, we've been watching uh, Jim Berg um, teaching on uh, a noise, quieting a noisy soul in Sunday school. I, I really encourage you, if you haven't been there, there's been some really good stuff and in Sunday school, I encourage you to join us. Um, but Jim Berg also wrote another book. Uh, he wrote a book called Changed into His Image. 
And in that book, he uses a really powerful illustration that has always stuck with me. And uh, I know many others have appreciated this illustration as well. And what he talks about is a tea bag. He talks about how in a, a tea bag, the way it works is you have a bag, it has tea in it, and you put it in hot water. And that hot water brings out the contents of the tea bag and then changes the flavor of that water so that it becomes tea. In a similar way, that's what happens in our trials, our temptations. It exposes what's in our hearts. It reveals. It's not that it creates these things that didn't exist. It shows us what's there. We're often deceived about how good we are, how consistent we are, how faithful we are, and trials expose to us our shortcomings, our sinfulness, our evil desires, and our need to confess and forsake those things. And that's how trials are used in our lives, to expose that, because God's purpose is to change us, to make us more like his son. Now, we also see the results here in verse 15, the results or the product of yielding to temptation. Verse 15, it says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. So sin is our desires. Our desires are corrupted. We, we join these evil desires with our will. We act. We do things that are sinful, or we think things that are sinful, and, it, and the idea here is that it gives birth. And, and sin, then, when it's mature, when it reaches its maturity or its final stage, results in death. We're told that the wages of sin, what we earn because of sin, is death. Uh, Adam and Eve, when they were warned about the one thing they could not eat in the garden, were told that they would die. Now, you may think back to Adam and Eve and say, well, they ate, but they didn't die. Um, immediately, but yet they did. There's actually three different kinds of death talked about in the scriptures. One is physical death, and that's what we typically think of. Uh, we, we reach a certain age, we have health problems or whatever, and our life comes to an end. That is a physical death. That is a separation of our spirit, soul, from our bodies. But there's also spiritual death, which is the separation of us from God spiritually. And that is, I believe, the fulfillment of what God was telling Adam and Eve would happen on that day. They had a spiritual separation from God. They died spiritually, as seen by their hiding from God, their fear. Uh, and and uh, then he needed to uh, kill the animals and uh, give them the skins to clothe them. Uh, that was a spiritual death. And ultimately, the final death is eternal death, a permanent separation from God. So which one's in view here? Hard to say, but you can make an argument for either physical death because we're told in 1 Corinthians that the believers in Corinth had disobeyed, they had abused the Lord's table, and therefore, Paul says, some of them slept. Physical death, an early, untimely physical death can be a consequence for sin in a believer's life, as it was there in 1 Corinthians. Um, but it also, in light of James 1.12, could be the eternal death in view, because in 1.12, he's talking about the one who perseveres under trial 
uh, is approved and will receive the crown of life from the Lord. And in contrast to that, someone who succumbs to temptation and turns away from the Lord ultimately will demonstrate they didn't truly know the Lord, didn't truly trust in him, and ultimately, if they don't repent of that, will experience eternal death. So, James is warning us, God is warning us here, that we should not blame him for our trials, our, our, our temptations in trials. He is not the author of sin. He's not trying to tempt us, but it's our own sinful desires. And therefore, he reminds us in this last point here, number three, that we should refuse to be deceived about God's goodness. So we should refuse to be deceived about God's goodness. Look at verse 16. It says, do not be deceived, my, love, my beloved brethren. And then he's going to go on, verse 17 and 18, give us examples of God's goodness. He says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So he says here, first of all, that we need to endure what we already know. As uh, was, again, emphasized in Sunday school this morning, God is good. And if the basic beginning of the Christian life, we understand that. But many times when we go through trials, that belief, that trust in God's goodness is tested. Our circumstances may change. Our attitudes may change. But God does not change. God is good, and that's true when life is good in our perception, and that's also true when our life doesn't seem good. God is good always. And he gives some examples here of that in God's nature. He talks about God being the father of lights, the father of lights. So he's talking here about God being the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars and um, we now have fancy devices, and we have GPS guiding us, and, and many times we're driving on the road trying to find places. But for centuries, the sun, the moon, and the stars have been essential guides for people in finding their way. And even now, we still appreciate those, the sun especially in having light and, and, and being a help to us. And yet, as Jane points out, these things have times where they're not available. There's clouds that will get in the way of the sun. There is uh, the rotation of the earth, so the sun will uh, not be visible at times. And yet, God himself is more faithful than these reliable guides. God does not change. There is no variation. There is no shadow of turning, he tells us. Uh, in God, he is always, always faithful. He is good. And he gives the last example here in verse 18 about his goodness in describing the ultimate gift, the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness is the giving of his son and that we have eternal life through him. It says in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So we see the supreme example of God's goodness. God is good. He gave us his son. As Paul tells us in Romans, if he gave us his son, how will he not give us all things? There's no greater thing he could give us than his son. 
And if he gave us his son, God loves us, that will not change. No matter how difficult or hard our lives may be at points, God is good and his purposes in our lives are operating for good. We need to be anchored to that truth. We need to be anchored to the realization that God is good always. God is always good. And we need to remember that. We need to trust in his goodness even when we experience hard times and trials that do not make sense to us. When we're in the midst of a trial, we need to continue to endure in remembering God is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and you do not change. Father, you know that we change all the time. We are easily distracted, discouraged. Sometimes we find things that happen to make us happy, and yet that can go away quickly. We are inconsistent. Help us, Father, to be more consistent. Help us to more faithfully recognize you are good, even though our lives may have moments that are wonderful and joyous and, and easy. And at other times, it's hard and frustrating and discouraging, but yet you do not change. Help us to remember that. Help us to be anchored to who you are, not simply what's happening in our daily life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.